to the Mind and Matter podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Amy Reichelt. Amy is a neuroscientist by training. She received her PhD in neuroscience from Cardiff University, and her expertise is in the behavioral and cognitive neurosciences in psychology and aspects of molecular biology. She has led research that sits at the intersection of neuroscience and nutrition, and she's really interested in uncovering the neural mechanisms that underpin how diet actually impacts brain health and cognition across the lifespan. So Amy and I talked about topics in that general area, how our brains are built to learn and remember things and how that influences our ability to learn and remember where food is and and how to get it and all of those associations. We also talked about how diet itself, the composition of our diet, can impact circuits in the brain, not only acutely, but how it can cause them to change in various ways. So we talked about experiments done in rodents, giving them a so-called Western diet, literally giving rodents um, food from the grocery store that's high in saturated fat and sugar that a lot of us uh, eat, and seeing what effect does that have on their general health, but also what is it doing inside of their brain and their ability to actually perform learning and memory tasks. So there's a lot of fascinating stuff there about how the diet actually causes physical changes to happen in the brain. We touch on topics related to neuroinflammation. We discussed everything from omega-3 fatty acids and different foods that can have either a positive or negative effect on brain health. We talked about psychedelics and their impact on neuroinflammation and how that might be relevant for things like diet-induced obesity. We talked about the parallels between between uh, food addiction and drug and other forms of addiction. And we talked about a lot of the, the mechanics of what actually goes on inside the brain at the cellular level with respect to some of these phenomena. So if you're interested in how diet and nutrition impacts brain health, this will be a really interesting episode to tune in for. As always, if you like the content on this podcast, please do like, share, and subscribe uh, either on social media or just by telling a friend about the podcast or an an interesting episode that you listen to. You can also subscribe to my free weekly newsletter at mindandmatter.substack.com where I provide updates about the podcast, including upcoming guests, alert you to other content I've written either on my Substack or elsewhere, and provide updates on what's going on in the research world in topics related to what I discuss on the podcast. You can also uh, like and subscribe to the video video version on YouTube if you just Google my name or Minded Matter Podcast. And you can support the podcast by visiting any of the links that I provide in the episode description. You'll see those down below. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D 
immunity is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Amy Reichelt. Dr. Amy Reichelt, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Can you start off by just telling everyone a little bit of who you are and what your scientific background is? Um, yeah, so I have a PhD in neuroscience, which I obtained from Cardiff University in the UK. Um, before that, I did a bachelor's in psychology uh, from University of Birmingham. Uh, I really first cut my teeth into what went on to become one of my major research focuses over the past decade uh, during my honours as uh, an undergrad, and I got to examine how the endocannabinoid system and the cannabinoid system affected um, palatability of solutions of sugar in rats. So utilizing some of the then quite novel uh, cannabinoid antagonists, the CB1 um, remonibant and associated molecules. And I then kind of put that aside and went on and did my PhD, uh, where I really looked at behavioral neuroscience and how um, the tauopathies and um, Alzheimer's models of dementia affected frontotemporal function using various mice. After that, I went to University of Birmingham for a postdoc and studied memory reconsolidation, kind of riding out that really fun wave and really looking at how appetitive memories, so you know, memories of food, could be updated using rats. And that was an awesome adventure working with uh, now um, Associate Professor uh, Jonathan Lee. Um, but I kind of wanted to escape from the UK, and I've always been a bit of a, an adventurer and decided that I was going to go to UNSW in Sydney, where uh, I worked in both the School of Medical Sciences and the School of Psychology, working with uh, Margaret Morris and Professor Fred Westbrook and looking at how like food addiction and you know, memories for food and memories in general were affected by food. And this really got me so interested in how our diet and obesity could potentially be impacting not only our bodies, but our brains and effectively controlling aspects of our behavior. And I was really fortunate while I was at UNSW to secure Australian Research Council funding in the form of a DECRA fellowship. And that allowed me to start my own research program and really start to hone down into some of the 
ways that our diet can control effectively our behavior to food and just in our environment in general. So I became really interested in how diet can influence memory formation and also behavioral control. And when I look back at that, it was, uh, you know, an amazing time. Um, I was living in Australia and I then went to uh, RMIT University as a lecturer, as like an assistant professor equivalent and continued my research there. And I then kind of went, you know, I've kind of done Australia for a bit. I'm going to go to Canada <laughs> and went and worked with Tim Busty and Lisa Sexida in the lab at Western University in London, Ontario. And I was working there, uh, utilizing a lot more sort of cool genetic tools like chemogenetics, optogenetics, and fiber photometry to be able to hone in a bit more on what these diets are actually doing at the neuronal level beyond just the molecular biology and the behavioral changes, like actually being able to control things. I was really interested at the time in how the extracellular matrix was controlled in um, potentially neuronal communication and did a lot of work there on uh, how, how our um, diets can then impact just specific sets of cells. Um, and then COVID hit which was uh, a thing and <laughs> still ongoing. Um, I secured a position back at, in Australia at University of Adelaide. However, my partner was still in uh, Canada and ended up you know, trying to do science remotely, wasn't ideal, and then decided, hey, maybe I should uh, head back and came back to Canada. and. I'm now working as director of neuropharmacology at Cybin, who are a psychedelics pharmaceuticals company. And it's been a, a massive learning curve over the last couple of months, but it's still exciting. Um, I also started my own business called Cognition Nutrition, and that's really being able to utilize my understanding of brain and nervous system and also behavioral control and you know, combining that with my love and interest in nutrition. Interesting. So, so your background is really uh, mainly as a basic research scientist, um, dissecting various aspects of feeding behavior and how how that impacts the brain. And there are a number of things I want to talk about here, but I think one of the things that someone like you will appreciate is how you know, the brain and the entire body is really one integrated apparatus um, that does all sorts of interesting things. But with respect to feeding, you know, I'm wondering if you could walk us through some of the basics of how a normally functioning brain, how a, how a brain that's healthy helps orient an animal in its environment so it can figure out what to eat and when to eat. So, how, you know, I know that there's a lot, a lot of things that we could discuss there, but if you could give us kind of a, a, a neuro and physiology 101 there. What is the brain basically, basically doing at a very high level to get an animal to uh, find food in an in a appropriate and adaptive fashion? Well, what I find really fascinating is that although as humans, we think that you know we're, we're so much higher order uh, animals compared to you know, the, the rats and mice that I'd be working on in the lab, 
um, we effectively have a lot of the same neurotransmitters and the same systems within our brain. And what really it comes down to in you know, when we think about how our little rat in, in the wild versus us as, you know, in, potentially in the past is you know, our caveman ancestors, we, we were all, you know, needed food for survival. And again, this falls back to a lot of thinking about you know, associative learning. So that, that sort of psychology uh, second year course that everyone found a bit difficult because, you know, we start thinking about things in a bit more of an abstract way. Um, but really what happens to us in you know, the real world is we find something that we find rewarding and food for us is a, you know, definitely a reward, particularly our palatable foods like, you know, uh, cakes, chocolates, they're high energy and we need these for survival. And our brain is still hardwired the same survival way. So, you know, we have our brain's dopaminergic reward signaling system. And this reward system that generates basically a prediction error when we're in, you know, when we find something that's surprising and interesting, be it, you know, suddenly eating something that's delicious and you know finding you know one of these little hole in the wall cafes when you're traveling somewhere you're like we suddenly learn a lot about our environment and we encode all of this information at once it's like this is the location so that's requiring our hippocampus to you know have learned that location you know our reward system is firing so that's requiring our dopaminergic system and you know, we have our emotions associated with it, you know, this is really good. So, you know, we have our prefrontal cortex that's kicking in behavioral control being like, should I buy another one of these amazing cakes? And we're, you know, this is like our simple system, but in the same way we can model this in the laboratory when we, you know, have our rat that might be, you know, in a, in a tea maze and it learns the direction that it has to go to find food um, by, geometrically encoding the landmarks around it that direct it to go to the right place. And I think about this in the same way that, you know, when you're in the supermarket, you, you learn where the sweets aisle is very quickly and you learn you know, how these certain rewards make you feel good. And nowadays, however, you know, we're in an environment that is completely replete with all of these kind of rewarding uh, foods and beverages and it's really difficult for then us to override these you know, innate predispositions to want these certain foods because we know that they make us feel good and we know that they're rewarding so one of the the terms that you used here was palatability so basically how how good something tastes and What's really interesting is that in some many aspects of palatability seem to be hard coded, right? Animals will many animals will will generally find certain things to automatically be very palatable, and it happens to be um, for most people most of the time that the most palatable foods are oftentimes what we would consider to be the most unhealthy foods. They're very calorically dense. They're filled with things like sugar. Can you connect the dots there a little bit more for us? From an evolutionary perspective, why is it that foods like that 
are more or less automatically so highly palatable to people? Um, I mean, these sort of foods, they trigger not only our, our dopaminergic reward system, but they also have impacts on our other endogenous neurotransmitter systems like our endocannabinoid system, which you know, again is involved in palatability, uh, our opioid system, which again is linked to the sort of hedonic aspect of, of a reward. And these foods, because they're you know, high energy, are, are important for survival. And our brain being hardwired for survival makes us like these things that help the species continue in the same way that our reward system is triggered by sex and sociability and you know, interacting with other people, that we crave these kind of behaviours and this reinforcement through our brain's um, uh, neuronal circuits are what you know is definitely driving this sort of ways of prolonging humanity as a species in the same way that our little rat in you know in the wild is you know just looking for a mate and looking for a good source of food and i think that it's you know we, we simplify our behavior now back down you know we think that we're, we're in these situations where everything is so much more you know, higher than really we are sometimes because you know, when it comes down to it we we're still looking for for rewards and we know as well that the reward system becomes hijacked by drugs and abuse this is where you know we're really turning up the reward system to 11 and making everything so much you know, you know it's really being hijacked by reward and this is making people you know, crave certain you know, substances in the same way that you know you learn about foods that are typically the really highly palatable foods fat and sugar and that these foods are you know the things that we know when we're stressed can make us feel better because we get that dopamine kick we also know that when we're stressed, our brain requires more glucose. And we also have learned that these foods physiologically are a quick way of getting glucose into our bloodstream and then into our brains. So that's why, you know, when we're stressed out, it can make us really crave these kind of high energy, high particularly sugar foods. We want these quick kicks of sweets and you know, chocolates and, and our stressful lives can sometimes encourage this. And also we've got these behaviors that kick in. So our, our, we learn about you know, how things make us feel, but we can also start to, when we, when we continue these behaviors, we start to form habits and habits are really unconscious and it can be you know, eating when you're not hungry or you know, always having dessert because you always have dessert or eating lunch because it's 12 o'clock, even though you maybe got up late and had breakfast at 1030, you know, just these kind of behaviors where you start really overriding your own physiology. You, and I was talking to um, a client the other day and I was like, it, it's so like almost uncomfortable for us to feel hungry nowadays and be able to really feel that you know that sense of I'm, I'm 
really you know, starving, hungry, and just want to eat. Because, you know, we're in this environment where we habitually graze upon things. Working from home is the worst. I think I just hang out in front of the fridge for at least, like, you know, 15 minutes a day, just sort of staring into, you know, what I know I've bought and put in there already. It's not going to manifest me some food magically. Um, but, it, you know, these just sort of routines that we get into. And also, my research has really suggested that our diets do affect these key areas of the brain that are involved in cognition, such as our prefrontal cortex and our hippocampus, as well as potentially also our um, brain areas that are involved in emotional learning, such as the amygdala. Mm -hmm. And you know, this has been sort of a big line of work between you know, both my lab when it was based in Australia, but also um, other labs in in Canada and the US that are all really interested in looking at how diet can like fundamentally change the functioning of these brain regions that are so important for us in behavioral control and learning. One of the one of the things that I think is interesting to get into here is on the one hand it makes you know it makes perfect intuitive sense that you know as animals that have evolved in the real world our our brains are uh, naturally tuned into, you know, you using general purpose learning and reward mechanisms to figure out how to navigate the environment, among other things, to find food um, and survive. So it's not going to be a surprise to anyone that, well, of course, we our brains learn to correlate and associate the taste of something with what it looks like or where it's located or what we had to do to get it. Um, and we sort of figure out all of those things. But you know, based on what you were saying and, and based on, you know, the kind of story we always hear told, if we're just going to use sort of the cartoon uh, evolutionary psych explanation for for why we have many metabolic problems today, it's that, you know, our brains evolved in a state where uh, abundance was the exception rather than the rule. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't every day that, you know, a caveman was going to find some highly, highly calorically dense uh, sweet foods the way that we can go get them whenever we want in the supermarket today. And so today in a state of constant overabundance, um, there, there's sort of, there are not a lot of good stopping mechanisms to prevent us from just overgrazing and overindulging. And that brings us to the flip side of this equation, which is, you know, the brain is, is a, capable of learning and making associations with respect to food and other things. But you started to basically say that what we eat and the patterns with which we eat um, can also literally affect circuits in the brain. And so I'm wondering if you could start to talk about that side of the equation. If we think about modern diets today that are highly calorically dense and high in sugar and other things, and I'll, I guess I'll let you define what, what the modern Western unhealthy diet really is, how to how does the ingestion of that kind of diet actually then start to go into the brain and literally affect circuits there? Yeah. And so sort of to define our modern day diet, a lot of research tends to call it the Western diet. Um, when we think about it, it's, it's full of ultra processed foods, you know, our, our convenience foods, uh, it's high in saturated fats and it's high in our refined sugars such as sucrose, but then also more um, sort of 
nefariously our, our you know even faker sugars like our, our high fructose corn syrup and these kind of hyper sweet um foods and these foods you know we, we know are completely ubiquitous within our own environment they're, they're so easy to obtain and they're not only you know having effects on our bodies when we overconsume them so for instance over christmas we we all tend to overindulge a little bit too much and you know potentially in, you know northern hemisphere where the weather is you know tends to be bad we're not getting outside we're not you know doing much so we tend to overindulge across a certain period of time and by you know january 1st we all start to look at ourselves and we're like feel kind of gross. My brain isn't really ready to go back to work. I haven't been to the gym for ages. I'm uh, feeling very sort of sluggish. And potentially, you know, it, it's these sort of periods of time where we do overindulge and do overconsume these foods, even in spite of typically having, you know, a, a generally quite healthy diet for us. Um, that we start to notice that you know these foods might be starting to affect our mood and you know how how like, clear our mind is so what i think is really interesting is that in you know, sort of 2013 2015 between 2013 2015 um margaret morris's lab at unsw um, conducted some experiments that were you know, giving rats access to our own version of high fat, high sugar diets are Western foods, which were literally Western foods. So we used to go to the supermarket and buy these rats like pies and cakes and <laughs> cookies and our you know, big white sprag dolly rats would, you know, eat these foods and they would gain weight. But what was actually found is that within just a period of four to five days, these animals started showing deficits in hippocampal dependent learning tasks, particularly our spatial uh, learning tasks as so spatial recognition, which is really dependent upon the hippocampus. Hmm. And this was before the onset of any kind of major weight gain in these animals. And it was really fascinating because it started to strike me that you know, there's something going on in the brain that's even faster than just our originally original concept, which was you, know, you gain weight, you gain adipose tissue. Adipose tissues uh, leads to the release of cytokines into the bloodstream. That's then going through into you know, potentially through the blood-brain barrier into the brain, and then that can start to cause changes. But there's very rapid effects of these diets that is potentially before even the onset of you know adipose tissue gain hmm. and so, so, so just to make sure i'm following you're, basically you're saying you would have rats on some normal rat diet and in a moment we'll talk about what that was you yeah. literally start giving them food human food from the grocery store um and when you say high fat high sugar this means in particular high saturated fat and yeah. high sugar just means sucrose, high fructose corn syrup, like all, all the stuff that you find in human supermarket food. 
they love to eat that stuff and they will choose to eat it just like we do. And they will gain weight just like we do and become heavier. But what you're saying is when you give them tests to measure their like spatial abilities and other cognitive abilities, they actually start to perform worse on those tests within just a few days, which is well before they actually get heavier. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of mind blowing when we think about how our diets can so quickly affect our brain function and also this kind of hit home to me when it came to that sort of thoughts about you know how sometimes you might just have a really big weekend and you might eat quite healthily in the week but then potentially you know there's there's stuff going on you know at the weekend and then you know three or four days of eating unhealthily maybe having this ongoing effect so looking at you know that you know these diets obviously have very striking effects on cognitive abilities when it comes to uh, spatial memory. And so that's very sensitive to the hippocampal function. And I became really interested as well in you know, how our, you know, our high sugar aspect of the diet, because rather than you know, just looking at something as being a high fat and high sugar diet together, but you know, teasing apart that you know, potentially there is an impact of, of sugar. And we were giving uh, rats access to um, 10% sucrose solution, which is you know, the same as about a can of soda in terms of the percentage. Um, and we were binging the rats as well on the, the sucrose rather than just giving them open access to it. So what was really interesting in these studies was that the rats were, they would titrate their calories almost. So they would restrict down their chow consumption. So this would be our sort of normal uh, rat lab chow, you know, wheat fix kind of boring pellets for them. So they would cut down eating that in lieu of, you know, then filling up their calories with the, the sugar solution when it was allowed and they were put into their cage for just two hours a day. See these rats, they would just like run over. They've got, they've got water the rest of the time, but they were just like, yeah, sugar time. And I was really interested because, you know, these animals weren't any different in terms of body weight. They just had access to, to sugar solution for two hours a day. Mm. And when we conducted some different sorts of behavioral tests on them. So we did the, the spatial uh, navigation tests and they showed deficits there. Um, and one of the uh, papers we used uh, a test of pattern separation, which really reliance upon uh, neurogenesis within the brain. So these animals were on for 28 days in these diets. And then we were using a more complicated spatial test with them where we could control the locations of the objects within an environment. So we could either make the objects far apart so they were more distinct, or we could bring them closer together to make them less distinct and so put more strain on the hippocampus. And what we found in this case was that our rats that binged on sugar each day showed impairments when we made the task difficult so made the separation much smaller. So when they came to then finding which was the, the novel located object, they weren't as good. But in basically the exact same setting, when we made the objects further apart, so 
putting less strain on the hippocampus, they they could perform the task. So mm. what made me think is that, you know, we have people who are consuming these diets, which may be, you know, very high sugar. And the effect of the diet, you know, isn't as blunt as, you know, just walking around being completely lost in the world, but mm-hmm. they're very sort of insidious effects that may particularly, you know, then be linked to a reduction in neurogenesis in the brain. We looked at uh, proliferation markers, and we also looked at double cortin for our uh, newer new uh, uh, differentiating neurons, newer neurons. <laughs> um, and what we found is that you know only when we start to really tax the hippocampus do we see these these differences. And I think this is really important because when we think about you know, how we might function fine on a day-to-day basis, we have mm-hmm. normal routines, kind of do our own thing. But you know, when we start to really push our cognitive abilities, are they potentially being you know, mm-hmm. detrimentally impacted by well, these diets? Yeah. Well, what this immediately makes me think about is, well, there's, there's a number of things to connect here, but you know, the concurrently with having this overabundance of high, highly dense, highly palatable food available at all times to ourselves, the progress that comes with civilization, that comes from technology and stuff, allows us to not push our cognition to those upper limits. And so uh, more and more with time, even within my own lifespan, right, there's... um, there's just less and less pressure. There's less and less need to sort of uh, force yourself to use your brain to its full capacity, so to speak. And based on what you're saying, the deficits that you're talking about are almost masked by that fact. So let's let's back up a second. Um, and I want to make sure I'm following what you're talking about before. So with the rats, what you were saying was you give some rats access to sucrose for just a couple hours a day or something like that. And what they would do is they would just start choosing to eat less of their normal food. And so they were basically, they were consuming the same calories per day as rats that did not have access to sugar, but now a higher percentage of the calories that they're getting are coming from sugar. And then you're doing these other tests of some kind and they're performing worse, but not if the tests are relatively easy. They're only performing worse if they get relatively difficult. That's, that's the basic result. Yeah. Yeah. And what's really fascinating is that there's so many neuropsychiatric and neurocognitive assays that we have as people and that we can do as well, but we can back translate them Mm -hmm. for use with the rats as well. So another major study that uh, I conducted was we used a version of the rat stroop task. So, or the human stroop task where you've got both. So, in general, the Stroop task, you have your stimulus, which has, you know, typically a word, be it red, and red is written either in the color red, which is your congruent stimulus, or you have an incongruent stimulus, which would be red written in blue. Mm. And when it comes to your Stroop task, you need your prefrontal cortex to be able to um, override your predisposition to just automatically read the word, but also you know, follow your demand that is given to you. So it could be you know, name the color of the ink. You have to say the color 
of what the word is written in. So when you have your incongruent stimulus, you get this uh, conflict in your brain where it's going, I really want to say red. And you have to override that and say blue. So we have this task with rats that, again, reflects this kind of discrimination behavior. And again, we found that the rats that were binged on sugar performed worse in the task, but only when it came to the incongruent stimuli. And again, that's suggesting that these diets are having not only effects on the hippocampus, but the prefrontal cortex, which is so important for us to be making decisions. And then I went in and looked at the brain's postmortem of these rats and uh, did some various immunohistochemistry stains. And one of the the key stains that I wanted to look at was parvalbumin interneurons. So these are our GABAergic interneurons that are really integral components of brain systems for like higher order cognition. They're balancing the inhibition and excitation in the brain. Um, I think of them as being, you know, those little mediators that you need to control your behavior and override certain responses because you know, your, your neurons are firing. And that also changes to these neurons in terms of their function or their populations are seen quite commonly in neurological conditions such as uh, autism spectrum disorder or schizophrenia, but you know, in a pathological way. But what we also found was that there were reductions of these neurons in the prefrontal cortex, but also the hippocampus. And this really fascinated me because this is showing that there's these diets are starting to have an impact on you know, different neurons, hmm. you know, key neuronal subtypes, and beyond just sort of neuroplasticity and um, potentially you know, neurogenesis that's happening in the brain, that they could be having you know, key changes to the brain and how it's functioning on, you know, on mass. And I've been, you know, trying to you know, figure out what, what's really going on. And I think inhibitory signaling is, is potentially one of the key ways that the brain is starting to become disrupted. And these diets as well don't just affect neurons, they affect the glial cells that are you know, in the brain as well. So one of the other observations with exposure to high-fat, high-sugar diets high-fat diets, high-sugar diets, is that you see an increase in microgliosis. So the microglial cells become activated as well. And that's suggesting that you know, there's inflammation in the brain. And some great work by Scott Konoski also showed that exposure to high-fat and high-sugar diets uh, changes the permeability of the blood-brain barrier. So our blood-brain barrier is so important to preventing pathogens entering into our brain and starting to disrupt um, neuronal function. But if that becomes leaky or compromised, then all kinds of cytokines and chemokines and uh, molecules are going to get into the brain and start wreaking havoc. And it appears that the hippocampus is quite closely related to the blood-brain barrier. So that's potentially why we see changes to the hippocampus so quickly. Mm. But also areas like the hypothalamus, we see um, changes in inflammation. Um, and this has also been seen 
in pathology from humans, which I think is really exciting, particularly in the hypothalamus. And you know, the, so this neuroinflammation is setting up. And then we've also got changes going on to neurogenesis and neuroplasticity and markers of neuroplasticity are changing our, our the interneurons, which I'm particularly interested in because our parvovamin interneurons, high energy, that bus spiking, they require a very sort of controlled environment. Mm. And what I was really interested in is potentially as well, this interaction between you know, how microglia, when they become activated, could be detrimental and damaging pathologically specific neurons. And one of the other key areas I was looking at was that the parvalbumin neurons are surrounded by a specialized form often of um, extracellular matrix called perineuronal nets. And if you just want to you know, Google what a perineuronal net looks like, they're stunning. If you look at them under a fluorescent microscope, they're these beautiful little web mesh-like structures that surround neurons and they perform multiple roles involved in plasticity, but also in protection of our neurons. So they form this micro environment around particularly fast spiking into neurons like our parvalbumins, because you know, these are very sensitive cells and they not only stabilize connections through their synapses, but also can prevent oxidative stress damage from you know, settling into these neurons. So I became really interested in you know, whether or not these diets were also potentially being impacted by our perineuronal nets. And, well, you know. Yeah. So I think one of the themes that I'm hearing here are, is, so these perineuronal nets that you're describing are effectively these little uh, mini protective shells that live around certain neurons and certain neural connections, and they sort of protect them from damage. They're very common around very metabolically active neurons, like the interneurons that you're describing, neurons that need a lot of energy, which probably comes to them in the form of sugar. And you also mentioned the blood-brain barrier. The blood-brain barrier is also sort of similar to a perineuronal net in the sense that it's, right, it's some sort of physical barrier whose tightness and porousness needs to be regulated because the brain care is very much about what's coming in and out um, of the brain, into the brain from the bloodstream. So, if I had to like very coarsely summarize what I'm hearing here, it's, you know, the blood brain barrier has a certain level of integrity that needs to be maintained to it. This high fat, high sugar diet um, can start to compromise that integrity within the brain itself. There's also these tiny little things called perineuronal nets, which sort of protect almost like shells, I guess, like I said, um, some synapses, those can start to break down. And that breakdown is somehow due to inflammation in the brain that is caused by this diet. Yeah. So we set up all these vicious cycles and it, it does become very sort of reciprocal in a way. And this doesn't just apply to you know how neuropathologies are setting up. I was previously doing some work with um, Dr. Cassandra Lowe at Western University. And we were really thinking about how when these diets start to you know, change on sort of more of a macro scale, the function of the prefrontal cortex, that our diets change our behavior and that then we set up these 
vicious cycles of you know, they make uh, they, they can compromise the functionality and integrity of of our prefrontal cortex. Our prefrontal cortex is vital for overriding specific behaviors that you know potentially we would you know naturally go towards you know, having the sort of resistance of temptation of you know buying that cake when you get your coffee in the morning um and you know that it could be that by reducing the functionality of the prefrontal cortex that you know there's both the the balance of the behavioral control becomes compromised but then you know conducting more behaviors that further compromise behavioral control and this then sets up these these behavioral cycles that are very difficult to break and also some work by uh, Laura Corbett was you know looking at you know, how high fat and high sugar diets or high fat diets I think she was giving rats like condensed milk sort of you know like sweet milkshakes and she found as well that you know um, striatal and frontal circuits, which were involved in you know, habit acquisition, you know, these rats start to form habits faster than their you know, companions that are fed a healthy diet. So, you know, we, it's all this, you know, learning and how we behavioral control and these sort of vicious cycles of potentially why not only you know we reinforce these behaviors they become very hard to break and also for people you know who have got caught in these cycles suddenly large shifts in diet can be so difficult for them and and stressful and we know as well that stress mm. makes us crave these foods as well so there's there's so many different things at play beyond you know just the simple you know mm -hmm. microscopic view of potentially our our peri uh, neurons that are starting to you know fire or break down and neural circuits and this spans all the way through to to behavior yeah so so these vicious cycles that you're talking about so so literally the the very circuits within the prefrontal cortex and elsewhere that give you the power to uh, resist things and to uh, inhibit certain actions are some of the circuits that are specifically vulnerable to uh, atrophy, literal atrophy, if you shift your diet to like this high fat, high sugar diet. So, so the same, the same circuits, in other words, that allow you to resist a diet um, themselves break down if you start to engage with that diet on a regular basis. And then of course, you know, you're, you're trapped and you probably feel like you're at the mercy of the food or that you're possessed in some sense that literally corresponds to parts of your brain that have physically changed. Um, one of the things I want to ask you about to connect some dots here we're talking about, I mean, it's obvious that we're talking about food and we're talking about diet, but you've already said some interesting things that remind me of something else that might not be, uh, that people might not immediately connect to this, but I'm wondering if there is a connection. So we've been talking about the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex. We've been talking about diet-induced changes in this case that allow, um, that allow certain parts of those circuits in the prefrontal cortex to atrophy, let's say. So connections are being lost. Not 
getting lost in the details, we know that that outcome, the atrophy of certain connections in the prefrontal cortex, is also very closely associated with other neuropsychiatric states. So one example is depression. Um, another example is addiction. Um, depression, one of the hallmarks of, of depression is a loss of um, connections, atrophy of certain uh, connections within the prefrontal cortex. And one of the exciting things about some of the research that um, you're probably also familiar with based on your background is that many of the uh, psychedelics and other so-called psychoplastogens actually do two things, it seems. One, um, they stimulate very rapidly uh, the growth of new connections. And we know that they do that in places like prefrontal cortex. And we also know that many of them are very potent anti-inflammatory agents. So is it a stretch to uh, wonder if these molecules might have some role to play in the world of diet? Yeah, I, it's, it's something I, I think about on the regular. Um, I mean, I'm obviously really excited by, uh, you know, psychedelic revolution and being sort of able to be at the forefront at, at Cybin, you know, looking at you know, novel molecules that are being developed, but also thinking more widely about you know, the utility of psychedelics and you know, their huge potency in terms of their ability to effectively rewire the brain and boost these uh, neural circuits and connections that maybe you know have become very much hardwired that underpin these kind of maladaptive behaviors. You know, there's the studies looking at smoking cessation. Nicotine is hugely addictive and has such an impact negatively on people's health and well-being. But people are so addicted to smoking that these kind of behavioral responses are incredibly difficult to override. But when you look at the studies that are coming out that are showing, you know, 60% people after you know, one session with, um, you know, psilocybin are able to, you know, quit smoking effectively for, you know, I think six months um, when they did the follow-ups, the, these, you know, drugs are genuinely causing huge changes in the brain and it's it's definitely not difficult to you know extrapolate from you know substance use uh nicotine addiction uh alcohol use disorder these kind of you know maladaptive behaviors that are again hardwired in terms of associations associative learning you know they're backed up by these very strong associations difficult to break that then how are these diet you know how are these drugs potentially able to you know change other sorts of behaviors be it you know, binge eating or people you know on the other side of you know the coin people with anorexia i saw that there were some you know uh, phase two trials or phase one trials or you know looking at how psychedelics could potentially start to you know treat these sort of maladaptive eating behaviors and again when you said about the neuroinflammation uh, the serotonin uh, agonists are incredibly potent and even potentially at sub psychedelic doses have prolonged effects uh, that are anti-inflammatory 
So thinking about how you know we have a, a population that's aging and you know, dementia and Alzheimer's disease is increasing with longevity and going to place incredible burdens on society that you know, having these kind of therapies and medicines available that can you know not only hit you know boost plasticity but also reduce neuroinflammatory responses that are potentially you know, underlying uh, Alzheimer's there's, there's these big links between diet and Alzheimer's I think you know sometimes people say Alzheimer's is type 3 diabetes um, that you know Again, we're seeing you know, changes to the hippocampus by these diets, but it's, it's again you know, not not like unthought of that these like states of like, low level neuroinflammation set up by poor diet could be precipitating or exacerbating the sorts of uh, neuropathologies that are associated with dementia. And, you know, I think it's such an exciting field. And I love the term psychoplastogen. Uh, David Olson, um, I, I think that it's, it's a really, you know, these, these drugs are, are potent. These chemicals can cause, you know, long lasting changes to how our brain is, is wired. And there is obviously a lot of utility in so many neurodegenerative disorders but also for for anything that's underlying you know underpinned by a maladaptive behavior mm -hmm. yeah i think some of this stuff is really important to emphasize for people because it's really easy to get caught up in some of the specific studies and some of the specific headlines about psilocybin for depression or this drug for addiction or that drug for this. Um, but I, you know, I think the important point here for me is actually that many of these neuropsychiatric problems, even though they, they manifest in different ways, um, many of them at least have a component that's shared in common across them. So, you know, the same kind of atrophy and the same kind of circuit in the prefrontal cortex can subserve or contribute at least partially to one person's depression and another person's addiction. And that may, that atrophy may have been initiated by the same kind of just general brain inflammation that many, 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 many people are experiencing right this very moment. So it's, you know, it's, it's not like these drugs know like what your psychiatric condition is, is that there could be these common, very general mechanisms that they speak to that have to do with these inhibitory and other circuits that you're talking about in the prefrontal cortex. The other thing I want to ask you about here is, um, you know, you've mentioned that some of these circuits can be vulnerable because they're close to places like the blood-brain barrier. You've mentioned that some of these neurons that are relevant here that have an important role to play in inhibitory control, generally speaking, they're very metabolically active. And another way of saying that is you, you gotta, you gotta invest a lot of, a lot of juice into these neurons to keep them working properly. And generally that means they're also more vulnerable, right? They're, if, if they're sort of high octane neurons that require a lot of energy, it's going to be, you know, relatively easy to break those um, if they're deprived of the kind of energy they need. The thing, another thing that connects those, those things that I want to, want to ask you about is um, 
you know, we've implicitly been talking about all these things in the adult brain, but some of these circuits are some of the, the last circuits to mature in the developing brain. And I'm wondering what you can tell us about um, the role that this diet plays in, say, the adolescent brain or the developing brain, because I, I'm, I'm guessing you can tell us something and I'm guessing it's not going to be a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, you know. We know from neuroimaging studies initially that the brain, the, the prefrontal cortex is the last part of the brain to fully mature. And we also know this from you know, just general behavior of teenagers that, you know, as you're, you, you know, embark upon puberty and then, you know, going through your teenage years that you do tend to show behavior, behavioral traits that tend to be sort of impulsive, uh, you're not the best best at making decisions. Um, and this can manifest not only as you know, you know reckless behavior, but also you know, making risky choices, but also having you know, quite a high threshold when it comes to reward and reward-seeking behaviors in, in our modern day environment, replete with lots and lots of high fat and high sugar rewarding foods. It never surprises me when you, you walk past a fast food restaurant, you've got you know, teenagers sat outside or inside in groups, you know, hanging out at the mall, eating burgers and milkshakes and all that kind of food in, in big gangs. I'm like, there you go. It, you know, they're not drinking. Um, but I think that, you know, we know that the prefrontal cortex is is a late area of the brain to fully you know, form, and we also know that our um, pulvulmin neurons, which are surrounded by perineuronal nets, the last area of the brain for our perineuronal nets to surround these pulvulmin neurons is the prefrontal cortex as well. And from my work looking at you know, both adult and adolescent mice that we expose to these high fat, high sugar diets, we did see you know, changes in terms of the, the distribution of the, the perineuronal nets and, and other people have as well. So, you know, basically, you know, really showing that these, these nets you know, are late forming and potentially the high fat and high sugar diets may, if they're consumed during you know, our adult and uh, our adolescent years prior, you know, and childhood, that they may start to you know, really derail how our our prefrontal cortex becomes hardwired because through neurodevelopment, that it, it could basically recalibrate the brain a bit so that you know, maybe you you start to set in you know, set in turn these maladaptive behaviors where you, know, you, you may have these habits. And then because you have these habits to do with how you eat at a younger age, that they become much stronger hardwired into, into our neural circuitry. And that may make then these behaviors harder to break. What else I think is really interesting is you know, for, for us, you know, we we notice as adults if you know we eat badly or we, we start really over consuming you know a lot of calories that you know it, it shows <laughs> physically on us nowadays and I mean I think I could just like sniff some crisps and you know suddenly my my jeans don't fit as well um, but for for young people 
often going through these you know, growth spurts through adolescence, and this requires a lot of energy. And in the same way we saw with mice and rats, you know, when we put them on these diets and you know, we're weighing them from when they're juvenile through adolescence through to adulthood, when they're on these high-fat, high-sugar diets, it almost masks mm. the 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 actual weight gain in these animals so because their metabolic rates are so high that you, know, you you don't see it in the same way and i thought this was really fascinating because you know this sort of feedback typically you know, people are getting and it could be that you know you're, if you're not getting this feedback you know, kind of socially or you know even in terms of your body image as as uh, as an adolescent human you can also be, you know, kind of negligent of your diet and just think, oh, it's okay, it doesn't matter. Like I can eat whatever I want and it's fine. But it, you know, your brain is vulnerable at this time. Not only is it, you know, still maturing, particularly in the prefrontal cortex, but it, you know, in terms of your calibration of your reward system, it's you know, has the potential that your brain expects higher thresholds of rewards you know you're always going to over consume there's this idea of this you know uh hedonics and that you know potentially you you see changes in in the brain particularly around dopamine that when you over consume these high fat high sugar diets and your neurons start to increase the numbers of dopamine receptors on the neurons, which makes us consume more food to get the same reward out of these foods. And that that could be, you know, one of the things that's driving obesity. And when we think about adolescents and teenagers that are consuming these diets, that potentially that that is, again, you know, potentially changing the balance of the brain. And there's other researchers that have looked much more deeply into how the dopaminergic system is changed by the consumption of these diets. But, you know, then Paul Kenny has, you know, he fed rats cheesecake and, and they, they showed behavioral and, and cha- uh, changes to the dopamine system. Um, but I think that, you know, it, it's important in terms of you know, education for young people, you know, to understand that what they're doing in you know their younger years may have effects down the line and i think that you know health promotion is really important for young people as well because they're very receptive to you know the environment and they're also in a situation where the you know, learning pressures are high so you know if young people have Again, when we were talking about the hippocampus being compromised, but only under these situations mm-hmm. of increased uh, demands, that you know, <laughs> what could be more demanding than you know, when you're when you're young and you're like trying to learn everything at, at high school, or you know, trying to learn a new language, you're trying to you know learn all of your, your history. Yeah. And I, I mean, the, it's I have so many questions that cascade from this. Um, and it's hard not to start to think in a, a quite a dystopian manner um, about some of these things. But what I what I was starting to think about as as you were speaking just now was, 
you know, so on the one hand, you know, we've talked about all of these diet induced changes in the brain that can literally degrade circuits in the prefrontal cortex, or in the case of the developing brain, prevent them from being, you know, built up and, and worked out and strengthened, so to speak, in the way that they would otherwise. And these circuits are very important for what we'll just call higher order cognitive control, sort of the fanciest, most sophisticated stuff that that we associate with the human brain. And so if those diet-mediated deficits are happening, and then on top of that, you know, you've got just just the other trappings of modernity that aren't certainly aren't helping our attention spans. I think it's pretty self-evident to most people that, you know, having the social media apparatus that we have on our phone and having a million choices on Netflix, you know, our, our attention spans are, are literally degrading. So we've got this sort of uh, surplus of options that, that are giving us uh, an external decision-making apparatus, right? That the algorithm can decide for you. You don't have to decide. You're talking about these diet-induced changes in the brain that prevent some of those circuits that would do that kind of thing from developing or from being maintained. I wonder if, some, at least partially, some of the diet-induced changes to the prefrontal cortex and elsewhere that you've been talking about, is it conceivable that they're contributing to things that we might not otherwise think they contribute to. So what about something like ADHD and attention deficit disorder? Is it possible that um, diet-induced you know, inflammation might be contributing to that? Is there any interesting correlations or relationships between, say, obesity rates in children and ADHD and, and things in that realm? It's not really my area to have looked at, um, but knowing that ADHD um, attention is so reliant upon dopaminergic signaling in the brain, and that you know, with with ADHD, that you know, the the, the uh, typical you know, Ritalin, the methylphenidate, that is important for you know, normalizing the the dopaminergic system as a treatment for it, could be you know one of you know, one of the things that. It's potentially changed by the environment. I'm not going to say diet by itself, but it is it is incredibly interesting that you know, our attention system is is so controlled by dopamine as well, and you know that we we now do tend to have a much shorter attention span just because we have so much information incoming at all times. I don't think it's you know necessarily. Our, our fault even our brain is just you know paying attention to so many things there's you know low levels of information coming at us from all angles and I, I, I try and think you know when when you have those periods where you're like you just have to do some like deep work and you know concentrate on something that you do still have all these distractions like your phone will start ringing and then your internet comes up with like a, an email and you know there's you know, all these temptations as well to to behave in a certain way, and that also gets me thinking. Like I'm just <laughs> on a bit of a roll now that you know if you know we ha we have so many temptations for you know other things that are you know these almost like micro rewards like looking at Twitter or you know go scrolling through Instagram or you know you know looking at TikTok or or whatever. That you know, these again are you know tiny rewards that again we we can find difficult to you know, 
stop ourselves from engaging in because we do find them rewarding. But potentially, because you know our our environment is so awash with rewards that everything is a bit almost blunted because you know everything's rewarding mm-hmm. and how how our brain is you know, potentially just not getting the same kick out of things and that's why why we are scattered sometimes and we do find it difficult to concentrate and i find if i want to listen to a podcast i take the dog for a walk and you know i'm just kind of enjoying listening and, and walking with my dog but you know, at the same time, I'm like, well, why am I not paying attention to to just what's outside? But if I'm home, there's too many distractions. You know, I could be, you know, looking on Instagram or I could be checking my email or feeling guilty for all the emails that I haven't responded to or thinking about something else. And, you know, it's that sort of divergence of information and you know, our brains, I think, you know, potentially can't can't cope with with his, you know, the incoming information that that we're required to attend to. It's doing its best, but potentially it is overwhelmed. So we've discussed how you know a certain change in diet, which is eating a diet that's higher in saturated fats and sugars, whether it's in humans or whether it's in laboratory rodents. Uh, basically has a negative effect. It has a pro-inflammatory effect in the brain, and that has other consequences, which we discussed. The flip side of that is to simply ask if there's diets that can have the opposite effect. Are there any, and, and there's lots of stuff out there on the internet about you know brain foods and, and the foods you should be eating. Um, I want to ask you, you know, how much legitimacy there is to, to some of those claims, but in general, if, if there's foods that can promote inflammation in the brain, it's perfectly reasonable to suppose that there's foods that at least don't promote inflammation, potentially even foods that have the opposite effect. So what can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, I mean, nutritional science is vast. And I also want to sort of preface this with what a rodent eats isn't you know going to have the same sort of effect necessarily as it would on in in a human setting because you know if you are giving an animal very controlled diet which could be supplemented with something it might be at a much higher concentration than a human could necessarily eat if it's you know in these kind of supplements but i think that there's good evidence that a number of compounds, which have been around for a very long time, are potentially beneficial to the brain. And omega-3s, which you know, are the building blocks of our neuronal membranes, and they maintain neuronal fluidity, which can become compromised when plasticity is decreased. There's good evidence that a diet that has these omega-3s that can be obtained from you know, oily fish um, are beneficial for, for the brain. And studies using diets such as the MIND diet, which is based around the Mediterranean diet, um, good population studies as well have shown that these diets do uh, improve both mood and cognition, particularly in older adults. Um, 
And there's there's a lot of work going on out at Deakin University, the Food Mood Center there, uh, led by Felice Jacker. Um, that you know, they they call it you know, coined nutritional psychiatry, and that you know really using these diets as as an intervention for te- potentially you know dementia, cognitive decline, and depression. So I think there's there's that. We also know that there's a number of compounds that occur in nature that are anti-inflammatory, and whether these compounds are being tested particularly for uh, cognition and brain health uh, is, is almost like supplemental to the fact that these diets and certain supplements can be good for say um, systemic inflammation, such as in arthritis, uh, where your joints becoming inflamed. Um, so there's also you know, antioxidants and you think about blueberries being superfoods, but you know, they, they are rich in anthocyanins and these compounds are shown to be anti-inflammatory, at least in you know, certain um, you know, laboratory conditions. And you know, there's there's other supplements around curcumin, which is found in turmeric, is also known to be a potent anti-inflammatory. We've got you know, we all know that a cognitive stimulant that you know a lot of us rely on on the daily caffeine. Um, that's that can you know potentiate you know plasticity in the brain so stimulant uh making us work better um and also i think that we, we neglect physical activity and aerobic exercise is is so effective for for boosting plasticity and mm. this works through you know, numerous mechanisms in the brain but particularly improving you know bdnf which you know, brain derived neurotrophic factor that you know, in the hippocampus helps you know form memories but aerobic exercise although you know you can't necessarily say okay i'm gonna you know run on the treadmill and you know burn off you know 400 calories it, it, you know, this is very, you know, a minor amount in terms of your energy expenditure. You know, it's you know, the saying, you, you can't outrun your fork uh, because, I mean, you could go have, you know, two beers and a glass of wine and that's quite easily nearly like 500 calories of empty energy that you're putting into your body. Um, you know, you can have a chocolate bar and that's 200 calories and you'd be like, oh, I just ran on this treadmill. But what is important with the utilization of, of exercise is that if you are looking at those lifestyle changes and you know embarking on you know, making new habits that are healthy you know trying to override some of those prepotent responses when it comes to you know eating cake or always having dessert or you know, you know your general diet that is you know full of these rewarding high fat high sugar unhealthy hyper processed ultra processed foods that by boosting plasticity in the brain through aerobic exercise potentially you are then going to be able to start to more effectively override these habits and i think that that's you know an important component for people who are embarking upon lifestyle changes is that integrating exercise 
it, it does make you, you know, at least feel kind of accomplished after going and working out. Um, you get that sort of feedback of, you know, when, when you do start improving, that you're like, well, oh, I started off doing this weight and that feels light now. And it's not because this, you know, 20 pound weight got any lighter. It's just because I got stronger. And, you know, starting to, you know, through exercise and diet, reduce adipose tissue. So then you're putting less strain in terms of neuroinflammation on your brain that's being generated systemically from adipose tissue. And uh, exercise is also increasing blood flow and helping in in that respect and getting these nutrients to your neurons. And, you know, there there are these, these, you know, taking again into the terms, you know, neuroplasticity being so important for being able to effectively adapt to a new environment. When I think about, you know, again, when we were talking about psychedelics earlier, people who have depression or addiction disorders, they're quite often trapped in these maladaptive behavioral circles really that you know, they find it difficult to to break um you know, for, for instance people with depression you know that the sort of rumination of thoughts over and over that can you know make these feelings and behaviors hardwired and we also know that that depression is associated with you know anhedonia and decreased plasticity if we start integrating in plasticity augmenting exercise that that then can start to help reverse these that you know stagnation almost where where we where we're stuck in certain ways and and start to adapt these new behaviors one of the things I do want to ask you about, because you mentioned at the beginning that you had previously studied the endocannabinoid system, is cannabinoids. And they're interesting in the context of what we've been discussing for two reasons. Um, one, we know the endocannabinoid system is a very important component of hunger regulation, generally speaking. Um, many listeners will know first or secondhand that you know THC is famous for its ability to uh, uh, it actually has a, a remarkable ability to to modulate the palatability of food. I'm, I'm always impressed by its ability to do that. Um, so it can make things taste better. Um, it often causes people acutely, although not chronically, to increase the intake of um, certain types of foods. But also many of the cannabinoid molecules, pretty much all of them, tend to have some kind of anti-inflammatory mechanism that they engage in the body. And so I'm curious what you can tell us about the endocannabinoid system with respect to modulating things like palatability and food intake and whether there's some connection there with the inf- inflammation side of things. Um, oh, it's been a while since I've thought about these kind of things. Um, we definitely saw, well, when, when I was, uh, so I was, I was studying, um, CB1 receptors and using antagonists. So the antagonists were, the, the idea was that they, they made food less palatable to people. So, so remonibant, it, its main 
idea was that it's going to block CB1 receptors in the brain, preventing the endocannabinoid tone. And then this would make palatable foods less palatable to people as a, as a diet type tool. And the, the pharmaceutical industry has really, you know, struggled with the development of successful um, anti-obesity drugs because you know, they either have very pronounced side effects and but the, the newer GLP-1 type uh, system drugs, they, they are showing a lot more, more utility. Um, but around the time that I was, I was looking at the block the palatability of, of the, the sucrose solution. And yeah, understanding that you know, THC, it tends to make people want to consume particularly high energy starchy foods or sweet foods. So these are foods that we already know are quite you know, rewarding, like bread, mm-hmm. marshmallows, you know, candy, that kind of food. Um, but obviously this is, this is an important endogenous system in you know, the, the control of, of consumption. And also, yeah, thinking about how the, the endocannabinoid antagonists, they, they, the, the major drawback of them wasn't that you know, they, they reduced the palatability of food. It was that they, they kind of induced the reduction of palatability of, of everything. Mm. It wasn't specific to food and palatable foods. And I think that the, the problems that were reported was depression in people and that you know, potentially suicidality because people were like, oh, my God, like not only does everything taste of cardboard, but, you know, the world has become grey as well. Mm-hmm. So if you start messing with the, the system, I mean, blocking your endocannabinoids isn't isn't good. Yeah, that, but, that makes sense. Yeah. It's not like CB1 receptors are only found in the tongue. So if they're <laughs> everywhere, you kind of have this this very general effect. And mm. correct me if I'm wrong, that drug, so if I remember correctly, when I first learned about Ramadavant, um, it's a CB1 receptor antagonist, as you mentioned. It does have the intended effect, as, as you just <laughs> said, of uh, uh, reducing the palatability of food, but it's its consequences, generally speaking, were so sort of broad spectrum and unacceptable that I believe it was taken off the market and it's really not yeah. used at all. Yeah, so, so it was, you know, we used it before it was, was removed from the market, but we, I remember also um, another student in, in lab at Cardiff was, was having a look at, you know, actually the, the negative consequences of Ramonovan, you know, trying to look at, whether it started biasing animals towards punishment in you know, really you know how it is changing effective type behavior um, or you know even in making choices for rewards you would they start to you know rather than an animal that would normally make a lever press you know you, you can do a discrimination discounting type assay with with um, rats where you have your two levers and one has uh, a small reward and one is associated with a large reward and you can start to um well the rats initially are like well i'm going to go for the large reward because this you know pressing this one lever once 
gives me four pellets. And if I press this other lever once, I get one pellet. So I'm going to go for the big one. Um, but you can start to put in different, you know, modifications to the demands of getting the bigger reward. Uh, so it could be that you, know, you, you make it so they have to make more responses and rats will tend to you know, continue responding on the, on the high reward lever until it's not worth them responding on it. Or you, know, they, you can start to put in a delay and do a delay discounting task and by increasing the delay on the high reward, you know, what, what's, is it optimal in terms of your behavior to keep responding to the one low reward or to you know, wait longer and only press the, the light rush reward? Um, and again, just thinking about that, what, what's interesting is we try to do this with, with rats on high fat, high sugar diets and, and high sugar diets and rats just regardless, but we're really good at this task and they would titrate their responses, you know, so that we didn't see any differences between the um, diet animals. But delay discounting, sort of reward discounting has been shown to differ in people with obesity versus people without obesity. Um, and, and there's been a range of uh, neuroimaging studies as well, which again links back to the function of the the prefrontal cortex and reward system that there could be this you know profound changes by obesity and diet to the reward system that do make people you know potentially make poorer choices or you know under overvalue certain rewards or undervalue certain rewards so again these these behavioral changes but back to cannabinoids it didn't work. Um, but, uh, you know, we go on these scientific adventures sometimes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm, I think the cannabinoid system, I think it's, it's incredibly interesting. And the you know, use now of cannabis instead of, you know, alcohol for, for, you know, I think is, you know, in, in, you know it, it's showing utility for, for people who want to relax at the end of the day. Um, potentially, you know, the the CBD uh, you know, utility of that for you know, anxiety disorders. I think that it's it's all really interesting, and also the the anti-inflammatory properties of, of CBD in particular. Um, you know, not just you know, topically, but potentially for for um, inflammation within the brain. I think that it's all definitely areas that should be pursued and are being pursued, and I'm greatly interested in. One of the last things I want to ask you about is the potential connection um, that you you started to mention earlier between uh, diet induced inflammation and neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's disease. And, and normally we don't think of these things as being connected, but is there potentially some connection there? Um, yes, there, there's definitely connections between uh, neuroinflammation and, and the development of neurodegenerative disorders. Um, I mean, I was thinking about, you know, particularly our microglia in the brain um, so microglia are support cells 
and they're, they're, they're basically immune cells in the brain that are are there to to maintain homeostasis and and to you know, remove any pathogens that are, are entering into um, potentially damage our neurons and uh, functioning of these uh, the brain and if we're consuming these kind of high fat high sugar diets and our microglia they become primed even if they they don't actually start you know damaging um cells themselves that they can become primed because they they've previously been in clearing up cytokines and oxidative stress that's there it's like they're hyper alert and then what can happen is potentially there's there's some neuropathology starts to set in be it you know, some tauopathy associated with alzheimer's disease or you know starting uh build up of amyloid beta plaques in the pathological sense uh, could have a traumatic brain injury a concussion um you might get an infection that you know starts to you know, also set off changes within the brain and then the, the primed microglia sort of overreact to these kind of situations mm. and when they're they're in this prime state they become hyper reactive and it's like they can start to cause basically mayhem within the brain that they they uh can actually start stripping off synapses from neurons in the case of uh, alzheimer's disease and telepathies where the neurons start to die obviously the, the microglia are needed to go and clear up the this uh debris um but again that it's just this sort of that they're primed mm-hmm. and this can then exacerbate what you know the onset of cognitive decline mm-hmm. and potentially other sorts of neuropathologies so um, if your if your general metabolic condition is such that these microglia are in this primed state they're not they're not necessarily actively doing damage on a moment to moment basis but you know when they're called upon they they react with such force that you just get yeah. this extra collateral damage that happens Mm. Yeah, and also there's been some recent studies that have shown that the microglia can start to interact with the perineuronal nets that are mm. surrounding the perineuro- uh, the pavalvman neurons, and then would they start either uh, interacting with the with the net itself and breaking it down, or then they they might also be sort of clearing up any sort of breakdown of the perineuronal nets elsewhere but you know then they're still reactive but then that means that these pavalvman neurons that were previously surrounded by the perineuronal nets are now you know unshielded from their microenvironment and these are highly metabolically active as you said you know they they like their environment to be you know nice and controlled and that they're very susceptible to oxidative stress so free radicals ross going around that then these can start to impact the metabolically active neurons and cause them to dysfunction and potentially you know break down or you know become 
become damaged and the synapses become destabilized and, and then you might start to see these changes in cognition and behavioral control because you know that these circuits are starting to break down and it's you know either due to the pathology from neuroinflammation and then that has a sort of knock-on effect to the neuroplasticity or vice versa that potentially you know changes to neuroplasticity you know means that the brain is less able to adapt to a, a neuroinflammation challenge um and you know sort of overcome these these events that are happening and i think that it's so important to think about so many changes that can happen in the brain just as a facet of the environment and that these can then have you know in a way really pronounced effects on brain function behavior and people's wellness well we've definitely covered a lot of ground um and there's a lot to a lot to think about um in many ways it's almost an inherently uh negative subject um are there any final thoughts or or uh, uh words of optimism that you might want to leave people with about the just general topic of the relationship between the diet and what's actually happening in the brain i think that firstly knowledge is key and it's really important that we start to educate ourselves more about diet and its effects that aren't just physically on on our on our physique our bodies but you know how it's affecting our brain i think that because of this interest researchers have started to to look more closely at diet interventions be it you know mediterranean diets mind diets and being able to you know potentially when somebody starts to experience cognitive difficulties or you know their memory's not as sharp as it used to be that they can integrate in these kind of changes to their diet without being reliant upon pharmaceuticals um and i'm also incredibly excited by you know the premise of psychedelics to be able to you know boost plasticity and augment neuroinflammation in the brain and potentially have these you know profound behavioral changes that are basically what underpins so many maladaptive behaviors that people are struggling with i think that that's that's you know really critical and unfortunately I, I, you know i think that sometimes you feel like it's too little too late in certain situations where you know like oh man i've got to you know lose weight and go to the gym and whatever but also because we know that the brain becomes more plastic when you're exercising and starting to integrate in these kind of behavioral changes it's like the first step is always the hardest step and when people start to understand that i think that you can start making much more profound changes to to your health and well-being and moving away from the idea that you know we're going to have this magic pill that's going to fix everything change takes work and you know scientists are looking at discovering new ways to augment change and new mechanisms to you know make it make it better and quicker but it's not 
going to be a magic pill overnight. Mm-hmm. Well, Amy Reichelt, uh, thank you for your time. And, uh, and uh, I really appreciated some of the knowledge that you shared with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk to you.